Old Testament reading uh, comes from Ezekiel chapter 13, a passage about false prophets and the storm of God's judgment that awaits them. Ezekiel chapter 13. We'll read the whole chapter. It says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying, and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord God. Precisely because they have misled my people, saying, Peace, when there is no peace, and because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundations will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash, and I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her, when there was no peace, declares the Lord God. And you, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own hearts, prophesy against them and say, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the women who sew magic bands upon all wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every stature in the hunt for souls. Will you hunt down your souls belonging to my people and keep your own souls alive? You have profaned me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread, putting to death souls who should not die and keeping alive souls who should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic bands with which you hunt the souls like birds, and I will tear them from your arms, and I will let the souls whom you hunt go free, the souls like birds. 
Your veils also I will tear off and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall be no more in your hand as prey. You shall know that I am the Lord. Because you have disheartened the righteous falsely, although I have not grieved him, and you have encouraged the wicked that he should not turn from his evil way to save his life, therefore you shall no more see false visions nor practice divination. I will deliver my people out of your hand. You shall know that I am the Lord's. And our New Testament reading is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 29, the last part of the Sermon on the Mount, where Christ has taught his hearers the blessed brokenness of the Beatitudes. He's shown them the self-denial that his people ought to be characterized by in chapters 5 and 6, what um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls the way of the cross. And now here at the end of the sermon, Jesus calls his people to respond to this way of suffering and self-denial. Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, The floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, boys and girls, the picture that uh, Jesus gives in verses 13 and 14 is a picture of two roads. One of those roads is a difficult road with lots of bumps, lots of potholes, lots of windy curves. And the other road is an easy road, lots of rest stops, very little traffic, nicely paved, lots of fun things to do along the way. If you're going on a road trip with your mom and dad and they gave you the option of which road you were going to choose, which one of these two roads do you think you'd pick? 
I'm guessing most of you would choose the easy road, the fun road. But what Jesus tells us here is that it's the difficult road that is ultimately more rewarding. My wife and I learned this on our honeymoon as we flew into Denver near the Rocky Mountains and had the option of a 90-minute drive to our destination, much of it along main roads. Or we could take a a three-hour drive through winding mountain roads with no place to stop for lunch. We chose the latter, and it was not without difficulty, especially as we searched for pizza in every small mountain town. And yet, despite our hardships, it was ultimately the more satisfying route. As we took in beautiful landscapes and enjoyed beautiful mountain views, the road less traveled was the better road. That's essentially the point that Jesus is making. There are two paths that we can travel through the narrow gate onto the narrow way or through the broad gate onto the broad way. One of those is characterized by difficulty, the other by ease. One leads to life, the other leads to death. And the question Matthew chapter 7 forces us to answer is, which path will you take? Christ describes these two paths for us in verses 13 and 14, and then in verses 15 to 23, he tells us about two kinds of prophets who will try to lead us onto one path or the other. And then finally, in verses 24 through 29, he reveals the final destination of each of these two paths. Jesus calls us to the narrow way. And we see this first as he describes these two paths for us. There's a bit of discussion about the gate in relation to the path. Are these talking about the same thing? Are the gate and the path two different things? If so, which of these comes first? Um, There's really three ways of looking at this. Uh, Some have said that the gate and the way are synonymous. They mean the same thing. Others have said that the gate leads into heaven or hell, and so um, each of these gates are at the path's end. But I think the most natural way of reading this is that the gate and the way are two distinct things, and the gate, which is mentioned first, comes first. It's a gate that leads to a road. The gate is like an on-ramp that leads one of two ways, either southbound to hell or northbound to heaven. And Christ is here calling us to take the northbound on-ramp, the one that leads to heaven. Life here in verse 14, when he says uh, the, the, one, the, the one leads to life and those who find it are few, life represents the kingdom of heaven. But even as Jesus calls us to take this northbound on-ramp, he warns us it will not be easy. Remember, this is the conclusion to a sermon where throughout the whole sermon he's been describing a way that is not easy. And he continues that description with two words in verses 13 and 14. Um, Notice that word narrow and then the word hard. Verse 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. The word hard is a a sort of soft translation for the Greek word that Matthew uses. Um, The word that that we see here is the same word we find in places like Acts chapter 14. In fact, I'd invite you to turn there, if you would, in Acts chapter 14. 
Um, Paul has just been preaching in a place called Lystra, where it tells us in verse 19 of that chapter, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. And it says that they stoned Paul and they dragged him out of the city. They supposed that he was dead. But the next day, he's apparently not dead, and Paul gets up to continue his ministry. And it tells us in verse 22 that he then returned to the same place where he had been beaten in order to exhort the brothers, saying, verse 22, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So he's talking about this same idea as the Sermon on the Mount. How do we enter into the kingdom of God? How do we find life? And he says it is through many tribulations. And that word tribulation is the same word from Matthew 7 that the ESV translates heart. And so now turn back to Matthew 7 and let's take another look. It's as if verse 14 says, the gate is narrow and the way that leads to life is filled with tribulation and persecution. Which Christ has already shown his listeners in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all sorts of evil and slanderous things against you for my sake, for great is your reward in heaven. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the way to blessing is the way of brokenness. It's the same in the rest of of Matthew Uh, Chapter 5, being slapped on the cheek, praying for those who persecute you, refusing to demand your rights, even being defrauded. Chapter 6, not seeking treasure on earth, but in heaven. The way that Christ has been prescribing throughout this sermon is the way of brokenness, the way of meekness, the way of the cross. Even the Greek word for narrow in verses 13 and 14 suggests this. It's a word that has overtones of distress and affliction. And so the narrowness of the gate and the difficulty of the way is not so much commenting on the number of people who will ultimately be saved. I don't think that's what this verse is about, but on the difficulty of entering the kingdom because of the undesirability of the path into it. The gate is is so narrow that you cannot fit your ego, but you must become like a child. Picture a wall or or a fence with a little hole in it, a little hole at the bottom, and you cannot enter through it unless you stoop down on the ground and become like a child. You cannot fit your pride into the kingdom of heaven. As we've seen in chapters 5 through 7, the last few times I've been here, you cannot fit your idolatry of wealth into the kingdom of heaven. You cannot fit your judgmentalism, Matthew 7. You cannot fit your grudges. You cannot fit your lust. You cannot fit your pompous displays of piety into the kingdom of heaven. And not only is the gate difficult to enter, but the pathway, Jesus tells us, is filled with persecution. It's what John Bunyan describes when he he talks in the Pilgrim's Progress about the hill difficulty, the straight and narrow path, the valley of humiliation. Christ is calling us not to the easy path, but 
his path, the difficult one, is the only path which leads to that celestial city. The broad gate and the broad way do not lead there. Comfort Boulevard does not lead there. There may be less difficulty along those other paths. There may be more worldly comforts, but ultimately they do not lead to life, but they lead to death. And there will be many along the way who try to steer you toward those paths. Young people, there will be many who try to dissuade you from taking the path of humiliation. There will be many who try to get you not to take the path of self-denial, but to go the easy way, to go the broad way. That's what we see next in verses 15 to 23. Now first, in verses 13 and 14, we see two kinds of paths, and now we see two kinds of prophets. There are the good prophets in verse 17 who bear good fruit. Christ himself is the chief example of such a good prophet. But there are also the bad prophets of verse 15 who come to you in sheep's clothing and yet inwardly are like ravenous wolves. Verse 15, um, Christ says, Beware of false prophets. Can you think of anywhere in the Old Testament where it talks about false prophets? Ezekiel chapter 13 would be one of those places. And what did it say as we read Ezekiel chapter 13 just a few moments ago? What did it say these false prophets would preach? Remember, it said they would seduce God's people saying peace when there is no peace. It it says that they would strengthen the hands of the wicked so that they would not turn from their wicked ways. These, These were leaders in Israel who were encouraging God's people not toward the way of self-denial, but instead toward the way of comfort towards the way of counterfeit peace. Again, to borrow from Pilgrim's Progress, uh, they were like those who tried to deter Christian from the straight and narrow path. The worldly wise man, Mr. Legality, who encouraged him toward the easier route of external righteousness. Pilgrim's Progress really captures the meaning of this passage. Christian had to enter into the wicked gate, meaning the the small gate, to get onto the straight and narrow path. He had to ascend the hill of difficulty. He had to pass through the the valley of humiliation. And all along the way, as he went on this difficult route, many came to him seeking to deter him and make the cross despicable to him. False prophets, men like the formalist and hypocrisy who sought vain glory, who tried to get to that celestial city not by passing through the wicked gate, but rather by climbing over it. And I think Bunyan gets at exactly what Christ is referring to when he speaks of these false prophets as appearing on the outside to be righteous, looking on the outside to be like sheep when really... They're ravenous wolves. Can you think of anyone in the Gospels who fits that description of someone who appears on the outside to be a sheep, but on the inside is a ravenous wolf? Listen to the words of one commentator. He says, In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, false prophets and teachers are not so much defined as those who deliberately don't speak the truth, But those who appear to be pious, yet fail to attain that whole person righteousness Christ has been describing. The Pharisees and the scribes are the first examples 
of such false prophets. On the outside, they appear to be righteous. On the outside, they look like sheep, but that could not be further from the truth. Verse 16, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? There were little um, blackberries on the buckthorn that uh, from a distance looked like grapes. There were flowers on certain thistles that made it look like figs were growing. But as you approached them and got a little closer, you wouldn't be deceived for long. They might appear to be one thing on the outside from a distance, but as you got closer, you realize they were not what they appeared to be. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 16. He's saying living a godly life can be feigned for a time, but what one truly is will eventually be revealed. You can appear from the outside, from a distance, to be a very pious person because you, um, you stand for, for the right things or because you, you're always quoting scripture. But when you get closer to someone, you realize they may not really be what they claim to be. An office bearer in Christ's church who appears to always be saying and doing the right things. But when you see them in their homes behind closed doors, they're not what they appear to be. They're not good trees. They're bad trees. From far, they appear to be the real thing, but you get closer and you realize they're hypocrites. That's what it was like with the Pharisees. In fact, when Jesus uses this good tree, bad tree imagery, he's, he's using the same word picture that uh, John the Baptist has already used in Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew 3, 7, it says that the Pharisees and Sadducees, while John is out there preaching a baptism of repentance, the Pharisees and Sadducees came out against his baptism. And so he rebukes them and he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The same imagery of fruit bearing. And then he says in verse 10 that the axe is laid at the root of the tree and it will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Sounds a lot like verse 19 of Matthew 7. When Jesus says, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I think it's clear the bad trees, the false prophets, are chiefly the scribes and Pharisees. That's what it says in verse 22, did many mighty works in God's name. Christ is, is making it clear that discipleship means more than religious activity. That there are those whose religious activity is merely a veneer on a life that is fundamentally opposed to the will of God. That there are those whose religious activity is merely a veneer over a life that is fundamentally opposed to the will of God. These are sobering words. He's saying there may be teachers of the law, there may be ministers of the gospel, those like Judas who walked with Christ, who in the end he will say to them, I never knew you. Knowledge of the scriptures, outward piety, serving in office, spiritual giftedness, none of these things are sufficient. Boys and girls, do you recognize that merely going to church, merely learning the catechism is not sufficient, but Christ says we must know him in the most intimate of ways. 
This word for know, when he says, I never knew you, is often used in the Bible to speak of much more than a mere mental, um, intellectual knowledge. It's used to speak of much more than acquaintance, much more than the way you might know someone on Facebook. And prior to this, in Matthew's gospel, this word for know is used in Matthew 125 of the way that Mary and Joseph knew one another. Marriage is a picture of the gospel, and so the way that a husband and wife know each other intimately is the way that we're called to know Jesus Christ. More than just claiming his name, more than just checking off a list of pious deeds, more even than theological mastery of the Reformed confessions. What does Jesus say to those who only knew him in these ways? Verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is talking about judgment day. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day. That day is short, uh, biblical shorthand for judgment day. And so as Matthew will go on to show in chapter 8, there will be Roman centurions in glory. Chapter 9, there will be sinners and tax collectors. Chapter 15, even Canaanite women. But on the other hand, the streets of hell may be paved with the skulls of teachers of the law, of false prophets, those who feigned knowledge of God on Sunday, but at home were like ravenous wolves. Those who serve in office, yet at home, abuse their wives. Those who preach the gospel on television, yet do so for selfish gain and have secret lives of sin and seduction that they're hiding. In short, those who despise the way of the cross. It's interesting, when Jesus says, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, he's actually quoting from Psalm 6 that we sang as our song of preparation. And in Psalm 6, uh, David, the suffering servant, says that he has a soul which is greatly troubled. He's near unto death. He's covered in tears. And he says to those who are enemies of him, the suffering servant, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard my voice of weeping. By quoting that verse, Christ is identifying himself with the suffering servant of Psalm 6, which describes the way of the cross. And he's saying those who despise this way of the cross will be cast into darkness. Those who despise the narrow, thorny road, the way of affliction, the way of meekness, will be cast into darkness. And in the context of the Gospels, this refers to the Pharisees. But make no mistake, there are still Pharisees today. There are still those who love to keep the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. There are still those who love to be seen for their pious deeds and then stand over others in judgment, usurping the place of God. I think Christ is calling for a moment of self-examination, lest we be one of them. For judgment day is approaching. Verses 24 through 27, and, and Christ wants us to make sure we're on the narrow path. And so we've seen thus far two kinds of paths, um, two kinds of prophets, and now we see in verses 24 and following two very different endings depending on which path you take and which prophet you listen to. These two are very sobering words. 
Now, boys and girls, maybe you know the song about the wise man who built his house upon the rock and the rains came tumbling down. Or the foolish man who built his house upon the sand and things didn't go so well for him. The, the house went flat. It's a fun song. Maybe some of you will sing it tonight with mom and dad. But as fun of a song as that is, we we need to remember these are matters of life and death. The house that falls flat is a picture of hell, the judgment of God. Verses 13 through 27 have three distinct sections, the two paths, the two prophets, and the two builders, and each of them speaks of eternal life and eternal judgment. Verse 13, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Verse 19, every tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Both of those are pictures of hell. Likewise, verses 24 through 27 are not just talking about the storms and winds of life, but about the storms and winds of judgment day. It's much like Noah's flood, a picture of God's judgment. Some will be saved in that day, others will not. Those who build their house upon the rock of hearing and doing the words of the Sermon on the Mount, of following Christ in the way of the cross, in faith and repentance, will withstand the storm of judgment day. But those who refuse to follow Christ in the way of the cross, those who take the easier way of external righteousness, who take the easy way of not denying themselves and following Christ in the narrow way, great will be their fall. In Psalm 1, it talks about two paths, the path of sinners and the path of the good tree that's planted by rivers of water. And it says, as that psalm goes on, that one will bear good fruit, its leaf will not wither, whatever he does shall prosper. The other, however, will be driven away like chaff in the wind. It says they will not stand in the judgment, the way of the ungodly shall perish. Sounds a lot like Matthew 7. Or we read from Ezekiel 13. Do you remember what it said would happen to the false prophets? Ezekiel said, There will be flooding rain, and a stormy wind will tear down their wall. The false prophets who led Israel astray would be the cause of Jerusalem's destruction. And just as it was in Ezekiel's day, so it will be in Christ. The the false prophets of the scribes and Pharisees, if they will not follow the way of the cross, if they continue to say, peace, peace, when there is no peace, then the storms and winds of God's judgment will knock down their house. I think verse 27 is prophetic of the fall of Jerusalem's house, the temple. You turn over to Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus makes a very similar threat at the end of the woes he pronounces on the Pharisees. In Matthew's gospel, there are five discourses, and Matthew 23 is sort of the counterpart to the Sermon on the Mount, where Christ pronounces several woes on the Pharisees because they do works to be seen by men. I think of Matthew 6, or because they exalt themselves instead of humbling themselves, because they focus on the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. That's the opposite of, of what Jesus says in Matthew 5. And so Christ calls them hypocrites. He says that they are full of self-indulgence. Matthew 23 is the opposite of the way of the cross. It's the opposite of what the Sermon on the Mount prescribes. 
And just as the Sermon on the Mount then ends with this warning, great will be the fall of that house, look at the way Matthew 23 ends. Verse 38, your house will be left desolate. It's going to be torn down. Look at Matthew 24, verse 2, not one stone shall be left upon another. Christ says the same thing in Matthew 7. The the judgment of God will come against those false prophets who lead Israel astray, those hypocrites who reject the way of the cross, and their house will be destroyed. And friends, that judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70, when their temple was destroyed, is but a picture of the final judgment, the final fulfillment of these words. Everyone who rejects the way of the cross, their house will be destroyed. Christ is telling us we can enter in through the narrow gate by sharing in this life, in the sufferings of our master, and in a moment be ushered into eternal life where one second in heaven will make amends for all the tribulations of this life, or we can go the broad way of a life of ease and self-indulgence which will not be worth one moment of the hellish anguish and torment it will cost us. It's a sobering passage that calls us to self-reflection. Are we entering in through the narrow gate? Are we walking in the narrow way? Jesus tells us in John's gospel that he himself is the narrow way, that he himself is the narrow gate. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. I am the gate through which you must enter, John 10. And so the narrow way, the narrow gate is Christ. As Bonhoeffer says, this is an impossible way, but if we behold Christ going step by step before us, we shall not go astray, for he himself is the narrow way and the straight gate. He and he alone is our journey's end. And when we know that, we're able to proceed along the narrow way through the straight gate of the cross and on to eternal life. When we realize that we are walking in the path he first trod, when we realize that he himself is our journey's end, we are able to say with the apostles in Acts 5, we rejoice to be counted worthy to share in the sufferings of Christ. The way to find life is to lose it. The way up is the way down, the way that Christ himself has taught us. And so Christ is calling us here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount to behold him, the crucified king, and to take up our cross in faith and repentance. And if we refuse to do that, then we'll behold him as our judge on that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, who is the perfect fulfillment of everything the Sermon on the Mount calls us to. The one who in the Beatitudes became poor and wept for our sake, who was reviled and persecuted. The one who turned the other cheek as they ripped out his beard, who prayed for the forgiveness of his tormentors, and who guides us along the narrow way. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us grace to behold the cross of Christ and the glorious future that awaits us. We pray that any listening this evening who have not entered through the narrow gate would take hold of Christ and have life. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.